of the uh, one of the greatest stumbling blocks to our service of the Lord Jesus Christ surely is an awareness of our own limitations and an awareness of our sin you know isn't it the case when we consider how we serve God or we consider how we or our usefulness to God. Isn't there always this voice in the back of our heads that, that says to us, hey, God does not use people like us. God doesn't use people like God. doesn't use Christians like us. God uses better Christians than us. God uses holier Christians than us and bolder Christians. That There seems to be sort of maybe aspects of our character, you know, sinfulness, flaws that are known to us, maybe not known to other people, that we kind of view as almost disqualifying us from serving Jesus as he should be served. Well, in this section of scripture we've got here, we are told straight away about God's gospel purpose. Did you see that? And we, in verse 11, like God could not spell out his gospel purpose any more clearly, could he? In verse 11, Jesus sees Paul, goes to Paul and says, right, here's how it's going to be. You've witnessed about me in Jerusalem. Here's the gospel purpose. You are going to take the gospel and you are going to take it to Rome. There's the gospel purpose. And in the remainder of the section that we read, what we see is God use people to facilitate that gospel purpose. And do you know what's remarkable about that? Is that the people that God uses... For his gospel purpose here. They are the most limited people. They are the most flawed people. To be honest, they are some of the most wicked people imaginable. Do you see it? We are confronted this morning with the reality that God does use people like us. He uses people like you and me and he does it to advance his gospel. Okay, I think actually we're running... Uh-huh. We're running away with ourselves. Like, okay, in the sermon, we're going to think about the people that God uses here in those verses. But we need to say something about the context. We need to say something about the setting here. So, do you notice the conspiracy? Well, for years uh, in this country, if you switched on your TV during the day, you are absolutely guaranteed to come across a cowboy film. Uh, I'm not quite sure what they were thinking about every time you switched on the TV guaranteed that there would be a western uh, on the box now we all know the sort of crucial ingredients to a good western don't we there's got to be defined goodies and baddies and there's got to be gunfights innumerable gunfights and then every self-respecting western must have at some stage always has a decent ambush right well that's what we've got here isn't it it's an ambush You've got the Jews trying to trick the Roman commander into sending Paul back to the Sanhedrin. Now, why do they want that? It's so that they can can ambush him, so they can jump out and they can attack Paul. Now, Now, think about it. Think about what we've got here. It is a brutal plot, that. I mean, they are not just wanting to sort of ambush Paul and hit him or hit him with a bat or something like that. They want, this is an ambush to kill Paul. They want to kill him. And then, did you see the popularity of the conspiracy? Honestly, it's amazing, isn't it, that, what is it, over 40 Jews. Isn't that something? Over 40 Jews willing to go against, very explicitly go against their law, murder Paul, 
Such was their hatred of Jesus and the gospel. I mean, it's, it's brutal. It's, it's a popular plot. And then think about the fact that it was a religious plot. Did you see what they do, the Jews? They take an oath. Presumably an oath before God. So they're swearing to God. We're not going to eat. We are not going to drink until we have killed this Christian man. So do you, do you see something in the setting here? Do you see how, how serious it was for Paul? Do you see that this was a brutal, wicked situation? So what happens? Like we, we dig it. We get it. There's the context. There's this conspiracy. But what does God do? Or more to the point, here's the question for today. Who does God use here to advance his gospel in the face of such advertising. Right, look at this. Let's see who we've got here. First of all, note with me that God can use the young. God can use the young. Now, for a Reformed Presbyterian church like ours, if there are a couple of guys that stand out in... uh, church history has kind of been heroes of the faith. If we were to pick a couple of guys, I suppose we would go for maybe John Calvin and Martin Luther. I don't suppose it's a surprise to anyone that uh, a Reformed church would hold those guys in high regard. Now, Calvin and Luther might have had an awful lot in common theologically, but they actually vary quite a lot in our knowledge of them. Do you see what I mean? Like Calvin, for instance, we know an awful lot about you know, we know his writings and we know his commentaries, but we don't know very much actually about Calvin the person. You know, Calvin the man, somewhat of a mystery to us. <laughs> Whereas on the other hand, Luther, you know, Luther liked to write about himself. So we don't know much about Calvin, but we probably know a wee bit too much about Luther. Luther used to write about his sort of digestive problems and these sorts of things. Like too much information. Okay, so you've got polar opposites. Now, if we were to put the Apostle Paul into one of those camps, he would very much fall in behind Calvin. You see, we've got a lot in the New Testament that Paul has written. But you know what? We don't actually know all that much about the Apostle Paul the man. And so when scripture does give us little snippets, little nuggets of information, personal information, these things are important. These things are helpful. So I ask you to look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. We learn that not only did Paul have a sister who lived in Jerusalem, who knew that, you know? But on top of that, he had a nephew in Jerusalem, living in that city as well. Now, it's the nephew, okay? It's the nephew, Paul's nephew, that I want you to think about. And what are we told about this nephew? Well, we're told, wait a minute, he somehow, we're not, it's not specified, but somehow the nephew finds out about this ambush, this plot. And do you see what he does? The nephew enters into the Roman barracks. He goes in there, he finds his uncle, he finds Paul, and he tells him all about this. Now, it's at that that a lot of commentators on Acts they will say, this has to be fabricated. They say, this has to be exaggerated. It's not possible. There's no way that this nephew here would have been able to access a Roman barracks. He would never have been allowed in here. But is that really the case? See, think about this. What what do we know? Well, we know, okay, Paul was maybe allowed visitors because he was a Roman citizen. Remember that from last week? Paul was maybe allowed visitors... Because he wasn't, he hadn't been condemned yet. 
But I think most importantly, this nephew was allowed in to see Paul. Why? Because the Romans didn't think he was a threat, this nephew. You see why? Because the nephew was just a boy. I know you're going to come back to me and say, well, the NIV here says that the nephew was a young man. But actually, in the language of the original, the emphasis there is on his youth. It's, it's not so much sort of young man. It's like, he's a young, young laddie. He is, he is just a boy. And you see that, in fact, emphasized in the text. Because look at this. Look at verse 19. This nephew is so young that when he goes to the Roman commander, Paul says, go and speak to the Roman commander about this. See what the Roman, Roman commander does. Like, if you were to speak to a little boy and you wanted to speak to him in private, what would you do? Take him by the hand, wouldn't you? Lead him into privacy. Is that what he does? Look at this. Verse 19, that's what the Roman, the Roman commander does. Takes him by the hand. Do you see it? He is allowed, he's allowed this access here because he is just a boy. And step back a second. Do you see what God's doing? You see the big picture here? It's wonderful. God is advancing his gospel. God is informing the Romans of this vicious plot against the gospel. And who is God using to do it? He's using just a kid. He's using a boy. And I tell you, as your minister, I rejoice this morning in our God's perfect time. Because... As a congregation, next Sunday, we make a pretty serious change to the makeup and function of our church services, don't we? So from that point on, from next Sunday, we will have all of the children of school age sitting through our worship service. <laughs> and some people say, you're mad. <laughs> what, are, what are you doing? That sounds like a recipe for disaster. But friends, do you see... Do you see the hope? I mean, this isn't about us trying to sort of manage children. This isn't about us trying to sort of control the kids. Do you see the hope? The hope is bigger than that. The hope is that, that as they sit under the word of God Sunday by Sunday, that, that wait a minute, that God would work in the hearts of our children. Imagine that. That God would build up the kids of this church. Can you imagine that? That God would maybe train them, teach them, equip them, and do you see from Acts chapter 23 why that is so important? This past week, Shona Fraser, Peter and Fena's daughter, she had an opportunity to stand up in school at the assembly and talk to that school about the Bible. Just talk to the school about Jesus Christ. So do you, do you, do you see the, the point here? If God builds up the children... If he equips them, then they can take the gospel to places where we can't. Do you see that? The kids can get into places that we can't get into. They have access to hundreds, hundreds of their fellow students. They've got all this exposure with their teachers and assistants. And what an opportunity. Do you see it? I mean, what an opportunity. God can use these children and he can use them to take the gospel to other people. I, I ask you as a church, as a congregation, to pray. Like I know we could just look at this and dismiss this. It's just a it's just a material change. Who cares that the kids are coming to sit in this church? I pray. I ask you to pray. Not just that the kids would cope, <laughs> and not just that we would cope with the kids, 
but pray an Acts 23 prayer that God might use the young. Think about the nephew. That God might use the young to advance his gospel purposes. So God can use the young. Next, notice that God can use the self-centered. God can use the self-centered. And with this, we move from thinking about the nephew to thinking about the Roman commander that we've got here, this guy who is informed of the plot and the conspiracy. So let's think about the Roman commander for a moment. Now, I want you to see and I want you to get that that God uses this man in really quite a remarkable and a mighty way. What we see is that the Roman hears about this plot against Paul and what he does is he sends Paul and therefore the gospel, he sends him away to his superior commander. He sends him up into Caesarea. But I want you to see how he does it. <laughs> Look at verse 23 with me, please, if you would. Look how he does it. He sends him Paul and he sends the gospel away. But look at it. I mean, it is the most over the top and uh, dramatic move, isn't it? He gets this enormous garrison together. Look at the figures there. Like 200 soldiers and all these horses and all these spearmen. It's just massively, unnecessarily over the top. And he sends Paul away. Do you see what God is doing? God is moving the gospel near Rome. God is protecting Paul, protecting the gospel, and he is using this Roman commander to do it. Now, the question is, what is this Roman commander, what is this man like? I think we get a real insight into this guy's heart from the letter that he sends to accompany Paul. Now, um, If you're in the world of work just now, if you are someone here who is employed, I'm not sure how uh, your employer assesses your work. I think we've talked about this in the past before. I know that some of you have to go through an annual appraisal. And that's a a stress, isn't it? That that day, that day of the year it comes, and it's horrible, the annual appraisal. But also some of you have to fill in what are called self-assessment forms. I don't know if you've ever had to do that. Uh, I've been involved in that in the, in the past. I've had to read through people's self-assessment forms. And, you know, like nine times out of ten, uh, they are the most ridiculous things in the world. Like assessing your own performance at work, you know, uh, they're usually they are maybe 99 times out of 100, actually, they are sort of works of spin, aren't they? Really works of fiction. Do you know what? That's what, we've, that's what you are dealing with here. It is in this letter that the Roman commander writes. He's writing to his superior officer about the events of the past days. And, and what he does is manipulate all, everything that's happened to portray himself in the best possible light. It is just this letter is a work of spin. Now, do you see that? Like, everything is in the first person. You know, he's writing to his boss, basically, and he says, oh, I've done this. I have, oh, I have uh, saved this Roman citizen. I've done this. Then look at the language he uses. He says, I have rescued Paul. And you sort of think, well, man, he kind of have, but that's stretching the truth a wee bit. And then you think, what he's trying to do, he is trying to recount the events of the past few days, and you think, what has he left out? 
What has he left out to show himself in the best possible light? There is nothing. There is no mention of the fact, well, actually, you strung Paul up. <laughs> you were about to flog him nearly to death. That, well, that hasn't sort of appeared. And this is a, a work of spin. It is a real self-centered letter. It is a work of self-interest. And as we talk this morning about our sinfulness, and as we consider our flaws, is is that self-centeredness? Is that not familiar? I mean, is, is that not like holding a mirror God holding a mirror up to our hearts. You know, that even as Christians, even as people who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, isn't it the case that, that, that we are self-centered, that we are foolish, even in, even in the life of the church? Like, even in the worship of God and the structures and what happens in a, a church, isn't it? Isn't it? We, we want the attention. We, it's about us. It's, about what we, it's not about God. It's about what we want. We are so self-centered. Friends, because of this, let me say two things to you. One, if this morning, through this Roman commander, God is revealing to you once again that this is a problem for you, that you are self-involved, self-centered, then I say to you, fight that. In the power of the Holy Spirit, fight that with, with everything that you have and you can Self-centeredness has no place in the Christian life. Do you see that the hero, the letter that you have to write, the hero of your story, it is not you. It's always, always must be Jesus Christ. He is the hero of the letter. But the second thing I must say, I get this, even if this is a problem for you, even if this is a weakness of your heart, this self-interest, no that if you fight that in the grace of God, that he can still use you. Isn't that amazing? Even if we look into the depth of our hearts and we see an awareness of self-interest and self-centeredness, isn't it amazing that that does not disqualify us from usefulness to God? That as he's done with his Roman commander, that he can use even people like us to advance his gospel, to bring that gospel to places, to people that desperately need to hear. So God can use young. God can use even self-centered people. Thirdly, God can use the ruthless. God can use the ruthless. Okay, can I, can I ask whether you are, are following the sermon as we're, as we're going through this? You see what we're doing? You see... At the top of this section of Scripture in verse 11, God reveals what he wants to do with the gospel, what he is doing with the gospel. And then all through that section, we see that God is using quite flawed and limited people to facilitate that gospel purpose of bringing the gospel near Rome. Well, as we end, the last person that we must look at is definitely the most unlikely of the bunch. Okay, we've looked at the nephew and the Roman commander. Now we come to the Roman governor. And uh, his name is a starting name. It is Tiberius Claudius Felix, the Roman governor. Now, I think it's probably true that we hate it when 
someone gets a job or someone gets a promotion because of their connections, don't we? Doesn't that rile us? We would much rather someone gets a sort of career advancement through working hard and through hard graft rather than the fact that they are very good friends with the boss. Well, what you have to understand is that this guy, this Roman commander, he was a man who got his position because of his connections. Now he, Roman governor, and this is a, this is an incredibly significant position that he's got. Do you know how he got it? His brother was very good friends with the emperor. And what I suppose is even more remarkable about this guy, Felix, is that previously, before he got this job, he was a slave. He was a slave. And I think maybe partly because of that, his lowly roots, what we need to know about Felix is that he was a ruthless man. And I I can't really overemphasize what a horrible man he was, this guy Felix. Previously, he had been stationed in, uh, in Samaria, and he was so violent and brutal when he was in Samaria that the Romans had to call him home. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a man who was too violent for the Roman Empire here. And not only was he brutal, but we have to add laziness to the mix, I think. Imagine by what we've got here. In verse 34, if you see this, so the Roman soldiers arrive with Paul. He's been sent up to Caesarea to see the governor. And he arrives before Felix, and he's got this letter. Felix reads the letter. What does he ask? What's the first thing on his mind? Felix, this brutal man. He says, what province is this guy from? Do you not think there is a, is there not a hint of reluctance there? He's like, oh, do I have to deal with this guy? I mean, where's he from? Can, can I pass him on to someone, somewhere else? Where's he? He's from Cilicia? Okay, I suppose I do have to deal with him. See it? I mean, what a guy. I mean, he's vicious, he is violent, he is ruthless, he is, he is lazy, and maybe because of that we are saying, isn't it amazing that God would use him? Isn't it? And yet he does. Look at this in verse 35. We see Felix, how's Paul, how's the gospel here? In the safety, in the shelter of Herod's royal palace. God used a man like that. So I say to you this morning, if you were a Christian, don't you see that if God could use a man like Felix to advance the gospel, how much more he can use people like you and me? You see, think about the fundamental difference here. We are saved. What does that mean? That means that we are holy in Christ. What does that mean? That means that from all time, God has actually set us aside for this. He set us aside for the service of his glorious name, that that is why we are called into existence. And and you say to me, but I am ill-tempered, and I am impatient, and I am violent, and I am ruthless with the people I know, and and I am self-centered, and I say to you, that's nothing to God. Don't you see that? Nothing to our God. Do you see that in Christ, he's covered that. That is 
God sends away. You stand before him this morning, not as impatient, not as wicked, not as ruthless. You stand before him as righteous in his son. And because of that, he can use you. And I say to you, if we grasp this, it becomes incredibly exciting. Think about it. As believers, as a congregation, as people, in the next few weeks, in the next few months, in the next few years, God could use us, us, you, for great things. Isn't that incredible? Not just material things. Not just things about this life. God could use us for eternity eternally significant things for the salvation of of other people. Things that will always, always matter. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it exciting? So I call for us as a congregation to do two things. One, we repent. Surely we repent. Surely this morning we want to know our flaws. We want to know our sinfulness. We ask God to reveal that to us and we beg him to forgive us for that wickedness. We fight that. We repent. But the second thing we must do, we must rejoice in Jesus Christ, surely. I mean, think about it. Our God of infinite wisdom and infinite power, what has he done? In his grace, he has said he will use you. He will use people like us. I mean, we are wicked. We are sinful, sinful people. We should rejoice that God would use us for the advancement of his gospel, that he would use us for the glory of his great name. Let's pray.